Thank you for joining the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast with your host, Clayton Craddock. Michael Kreuter is the owner of Yellow Sound Lab. It's a recording facility that serves as the musical home of Sesame Street on PBS. Michael plays drums, percussion, and is the music mixing engineer for the show. Michael has appeared in performances with diverse artists such as Keith Lockhart, Jack Elliott, Winona Judd, John Legend, Elvis Costello, Randy Brecker, Audrey McDonald, Don Rickles, Christian McBride, and Christian Chenoweth. Michael serves as the music director, drummer, and guitarist for Cheetah Rivera, played the Broadway run and subsequent tour of Cheetah Rivera, The Dancer's Life, was the drummer for the Broadway revival of Sunset Boulevard featuring Glenn Close, and was the drummer for the hit Tony Award-winning Broadway show, Avenue Q. Welcome to Broadway Drumming 101. My guest today is Michael Kreuter, the daytime Emmy Award-winning Mike Kreuter. Uh-huh. <laughs> Do you have your uh, your Emmy Award somewhere back there? I have I have them in the other room. I have a, <laughs> um, yes, I have them. I have them. Just... <laughs> you know, I, I went to somebody's office one time and I actually picked one of those things up. They're heavy, aren't they? Very heavy. They're really heavy, super heavy. That's yeah. the one with the, the, I guess the woman's like holding the globe or something like that. Yeah, it's like, yeah, it's like this, you know, this, this big, it's huge. It's huge and heavy. And, 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 and we have a few of them, you know, when you work on a, a TV show, that's super popular. And what, what would that be by the way? <laughs> when you work on Sesame street, <laughs> uh, what happens is, you know, you, when it comes to awards season, it gets a lot of attention because it's uh, you know so popular and it's so good and we work our butts off on it and there's not a lot of not a lot of children's television programming that has a live band still, um, so it's it's kind of unique, um, and and we win the Emmys a lot you know it's it's crazy it's crazy it's always fun and it's always nice to be recognized and all that good stuff yeah so you are the drummer for Sesame Street. Yeah, so I'm the drummer for Sesame Street, and I've been the drummer for Sesame Street for um, let's see, this is our th- we're, we just started our 13th season. Um, so we just started season 53, and this band and this uh, team started in season 40, 13 years ago. Um, so I'm the drummer for Sesame Street, and I'm also the music, uh, the song mixing engineer. So I mix all the songs for Sesame Street. Wow. So before you you got started in Sesame Street, you you were doing a bunch of other things. What if you can go back? What was your first musical memory? Oh boy, of playing any at any age? At an, at at any age. Of playing. Yeah. Playing. Or just it's just in your life. What was the first like thing that? It was my... was it a record that you remember? Yeah. Um, hearing or. You know, my first introduction to music, I think, in my life was my mom and my grandmother. My mother played piano. Uh, not a lot, but she played piano. But my grandmother was actually a piano teacher in Fort Lee, New Jersey. Uh, she taught piano and she taught accordion. So we would visit when we were tiny kids and, you know, there were all those instruments and, and you know, every once in a while my grandmother would play. So that was probably my first introduction. She, of course, was instrumental in me being a drummer. Because when I was maybe five years old, I think maybe six, um, she I was staying at her apartment in Fort Lee, 
and she said, let's go to the toy store. It's your birthday or it's soon, you know, maybe your birthday's in a few days. Uh, let's go to the toy store and you can pick anything you want. And I went to the toy store with her and I saw this Smurf drum set way up on the shelf with Papa Smurf on the bass drum cover. And I was like, I want that. And she thought, oh my God, your parents are going to kill me, but um, okay, let's do it. So we got this Smurf drum set. We brought it back to her apartment and set it up and the rest is history. Yeah. That was the beginning of it all. And I still have two pieces from that drum kit. Oh, really? Yeah. Did they have real drum heads on them? No, they were paper drum heads, but they I remember were, those. And I can't really hit it too hard, that drum. But the symbol that came with it is this old, it's like this old tin symbol that sounds amazing. And I actually use it for Sesame Street quite a bit. Oh, really? Yeah. So um, at Sesame Street, there's a sound called grouchy drums. So whenever the grouch is in a scene and there's any sort of groove, it's not we don't use the actual real drum sound. We use what we call grouchy drums and grouchy drums is like that tin symbol. And I, then I grab a splash symbol and a couple other metallic things. I put them on two floor toms and I take four mallets with ma- uh, with my hands and I bash as hard as I can the, the tin symbol and the splash symbol and the floor toms. And that's how we get the, the Oscar, the grouch drum sound for Sesame street. So oh, wow, that's my grandmother's symbol that, that is 42 years old that's on that on the show. It's pretty yeah, cool. It's cool. It's pretty cool. So when I play it, you know, and I hear it on the episode and I mix it, you know, it's fun. I think of her, you know, it's, it's, um, it's cool. Did you start taking lessons shortly after getting the drum set? No, I started taking lessons in fourth grade. Um, I actually wanted to play drums in the elementary school band, but Mr. Blumenthal, said everybody wants to be a drummer so we only let sixth graders be drummers so you you have to do something else so i reluctantly played alto saxophone in the fourth grade band but i loved watching the drummers and i loved just doing uh, seeing what they were doing so you know my mom said well you don't need to play drums in the band why don't we just get you a teacher you could play drums outside of the school and then you could play saxophone in the school and i thought okay that's pretty cool then fifth grade came and once again, I said to Mr. Lewenthal, I really want to play drums. I don't want to play alto sax anymore. And he said, sorry, sixth graders only for drums. But my mom called him and said, how many students do you have that take private lessons outside of the school and the instruments that they're playing? And he's like, I, I don't know. I don't think I have any. And she said, well, my son, you know, is taking drum lessons and he's not even playing drums in your band. So maybe that would be interesting you know for him to switch to drums since percussion since he's taking lessons and mr blumenthal was all about it. he's like wow if he's taking private lessons outside of school he could be our he could join the percussion section and that's uh so that's so fifth grade started you know yeah fifth grade i went to the percussion section and then kept taking my lessons and uh yeah do you still play sax oh can no. you no, not at all. <laughs> you just gave that up and like, no, this is where I want to go now. Yeah. I don't know how they do it. It felt so horrible on my mouth and on my teeth. Mm. I couldn't wait to play to switch to drums. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, looking back on it, I wish I'd kept going. I actually played violin before saxophone. I played Suzuki violin starting in first grade for a few years. Um, but, you know, Suzuki violin is interesting because it's all by ear. And at the concerts... You st- 
stay, you stand up for the songs you know, and you sit down for the songs you don't know. So pretty much every year I played violin, I would stand up for Minuet and G, Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, and a couple of others. And that's pretty much all I learned. I learned like four or five songs, and then I sat down for the rest. So violin was not so much fun for me. Mm. Uh, I really found my my rhythm. <laughs> I found my thing when I switched to drums, you know, taking lessons and and ending the school. Yeah. Were there any drummers that you looked up to at the time? When I was taking lessons with a guy named Phil Grice, he was in Westchester where I grew up for the most part. He would be all about rudiments, right? So like he was an old school guy. So 40 minutes of snare rudiments and we would do 10 minutes of mallet sight reading on the xylophone. And then we would go to the kit for five or 10 minutes and play along to Buddy Rich big band albums. I was pretty young and didn't really understand at the time, probably that Buddy Rich is who is Buddy Rich, you know, this insane drummer. Uh, but that was my first introduction to like drum set playing and to jazz was, was Buddy Rich. Then, you know, as I got older, I, I, I remember discovering uh, the Chicory Acoustic Band and Dave Weckl. And I was like, whoa, what's this? And then my teacher, Phil Grice, would say, wait a second on Dave Weckl. If you think that's cool, you should really check out the Miles Davis Quintet albums and uh, Philly Joe and Tony Williams. And it's like, oh my. And then and then you know, your head starts to explode, right? And then like Vinnie Caliuta with Joni and Sting and Zappa. And and, um, and then it all, it all blew up from there. But Buddy Rich... Dave Weckl and Philly Joe and Tony Williams were probably my first jazz influences. But I was also a kid of the 80s. So Rush, Led Zeppelin, Van Halen, Iron Maiden. I was playing along to all that stuff and trying to learn all the rock music I could learn. Rush, Iron Maiden, Tony Williams, Philly Joe. I guess cast albums weren't really on your radar at the time. At the time, they kind of were a little bit because... A little bit because that's what my parents listened to. What musicals were you into? My parents loved listening to Fiddler. I remember that. We would listen to Les Mis when I was very young um, in the house. And, in, and and car trips. My dad would, when he was driving long trips, would love to listen to musicals because he could sing along to. West Side Story. My mom was, a, was an actor. So she, you know, I, I was able to see and hear a lot of musicals growing up because she was in them or producing them or directing them. Uh, my dad uh, was did a lot of the technical work for my mom's uh, shows. She ran a couple of regional theaters, community theaters. Um, so I was, you know, listening to all that stuff, but I was also really deeply entrenched in, in musical theater because of my parents. Did you ever think of... Uh having a career in theater at the time? Mm, I think so a little bit. Yeah. I knew as I was getting older, I wanted to do this for a living. I knew that theater would be an option. One of my first thoughts was like being in an orchestra and, and play musicals on the side kind of thing. But uh, I always knew it was always on the radar. I always knew it was something that I'd probably want to get into. Were there um, options of going to school for music? And is that what you did? Yeah. I went to, um, I went to Syracuse University for my bachelor's degree and I studied classical percussion there with a guy named Michael Bull. And, uh, and then I went to Miami in Florida for, for graduate studies. And I studied with um, Steve Rucker and Steve Bagby and Nay Rosaro and Keith Aleo. 
So it was like two drum set guys and two classical guys. And um, that was pretty amazing. That was a great couple of years. And I actually stayed there a third year because I was working down there so much. So I stayed a third year after, before moving to New York. I stayed and worked an extra year. And I had some really great gigs. I was the drummer for the Actors Playhouse in Miami. So I was doing all their musicals. And I was the fifth percussionist for the Florida Philharmonic and New World Symphony. So I was getting like the classical world and I was getting the show world. And um, I mean, it was incredible. It was incredible. As a matter of fact, when I moved to New York, a couple of people were like, why did you move here? There's not a lot of work here and you were working in Miami. Why would you leave that? I was, I was going to ask you that question. What made you decide to move to New York? Well, you know, I'm from New York, first of all. So I always wanted to, I always knew I wanted to live in New York. And, and I also knew um, with my experience with the Florida Phil and New World Symphony that although I loved playing in the symphony orchestra, um, I knew it wasn't something I wanted to do for a career. Not to mention the fact that it is so hard to get into a great orchestra. It's so competitive, right? Um, so I thought, you know, if I want to do shows, I really need to go to New York. I could do them here, but I well, let's just see what happens. And it's not a foreign place. You know, you're from there, so go, go give it a shot. You didn't want to play fusion like Dave Weckl or or a straight-ahead jazz like Tony no. Williams? Or? No. No. I mean, I love playing that stuff, but no, it never crossed my mind that I would be like a jazz cat drummer, professional jazz drummer. Now, before, um, before we got on this Zoom call, I was telling Mike about uh, the years when I had a lot of hair. I used, to, <laughs> I used to have a lot. I used to have dreadlocks that went down to my back, actually. And my girlfriend wants me to grow them back. And it's just like almost impossible for me to do. But during the days that you were growing up, did you grow out your hair long and, and want to be in a band like, you know, a, a metal yeah. band? Yeah. So I grew my hair long. I have uh, uh, Hilarious pictures to prove it. Uh, <laughs> I was in a band called Blind Man's Son, and the son was S-U-N, not S-O-N. Okay. And we all met at Syracuse. We toured for a couple of years um, while still going to school. Um, put out an album. Uh, we were in the jam band scene, so um, we opened up for a lot of cool bands at the time. We opened up for The Roots. We opened up for... Um, uh, they had Todd and the Monsters uh, at festivals, all sorts of different cool, cool bands. And, um, and then I had a horrible decision to make, you know, at the end, when I graduated uh, Syracuse, they had all graduated already. They were about a year older than me. The band was, and they were like, you know, basically a decision had to be made. Am I going to go to New York or to grad school, or am I going to be in a band, a rock band and see what that life is like? And um, I chose go to grad school and not see what the band life was like. And um, I'm super glad I made that decision because things turned out the way I wanted it to turn out for the most part. So you moved to New York and the goal was to play in shows or was it to just find work anywhere? No, to work in shows. So I actually got a gig before I moved to New York that took me out of New York for 11 months. Um, so I auditioned, I flew to New York to audition for the Buddy Holly story national tour. And I got the gig and I basically moved to New York and maybe a month later I was out on the road for 11 months with the Buddy Holly story. 
So I got a gig right away. I was really lucky. And um, I came back from the Buddy Holly story tour. I got another great gig, a Vita in Europe. It was supposed to be, it was supposed to be Berlin, Barcelona, and Madrid, six weeks each. And after Berlin, they, they uh, called for a meeting and uh, said, we all thought it was like a meeting to get flight information to go to Barcelona. And uh, they said, you're all going home tomorrow. We're not continuing the tour. Our producer got busted for something. And <laughs> oh, man, we're canceled. And it was <laughs> disappointing. And so I came back and I was like, oh, my God, I'm gigless. This is weird. And I'm in New York. And um, and then I got a call to do this was a, like a like one of those like, oh, this business type things. You know, I got a call to do a, a tour, a national tour. At, luckily like within a week or two and and uh i got the call the contractor was like it's your gig and then the next day he's like i never checked with the music director he had already talked to someone you're not going out on this tour after all so for a day i was like oh i have another gig and then i didn't and then it was um but that's what led me to doing uh a show at the helen hayes in nyack and that's what led to Avenue Q in a weird way. Oh, wow. So if the Avita tour had not been canceled and this other show had not fallen through, um, I would not have gotten my first Broadway show, Avenue Q, that I did for seven years. So things really happened for a reason. That's what I learned at the time. Tell me about yeah. getting Avenue Q. How did, how did you wind up getting that particular chair? Yeah, it's kind of a, it's a, it's cool. Um, one of those right time, right place things. I, um, I was doing the sound of music and at the Helen Hayes with Lynn Schenkel. Oh yeah. Yeah. And Lynn, so I had done after I did the Buddy Holly story tour, I did the Buddy Holly story at the Helen Hayes for a couple of weeks. We did a, we did it there. And, and the director said, hey, we're doing Sound of Music next. If you want, I could put your name in, you know, I could tell Lynn about you and maybe you could play Sound of Music as well. And he said, just so you know, her husband's a drummer, so he might want to do the gig. So if he does, <laughs> then obviously you're not going to do it. Of course, that's Joe Moat. And, uh, and I was like, wow, I hope this guy named Joe Moat doesn't want to do it because I'd love to, you know, do the Sound of Music there. It's right outside of the city. And sure enough, um, Lynn called and was like, Hey, do you want to do this? And, uh, I said, yes. And, and it was pretty cool. Mary Mitchell Campbell was playing keyboards in that band. I mean, we're, this is like many, many, many years ago. Um, pre 2005, whatever it was, 2003, maybe, um, Jan Williams, the late Jan Williams keyboard. And, uh, so, you know, it was, it was pretty amazing. So Stephen Aramis had done a show there right before Sound of Music with my older brother, Jeff, and Jeff's a lighting designer on Broadway. And he was the lighting designer for the show. And um, Stephen was telling Jeff about Avenue Q and saying that he's putting a band together. And Jeff said, you know, my brother's working with Lynn right now at the, at the Helen Hayes. Um, and Stephen said, oh, really? That's, that's interesting. Um, you know, have him call me. So I called Steven and I said, Hey, Mike, I, you know, this is what I've done. And 
He's like, listen, I'm putting a band together for this off-Broadway puppet show. Um, send me a demo. I got to hear, you know, I got to hear you. We have some people we're considering, but send me a demo. So I put a demo together of all, like, what I thought was my best recordings, you know. And, uh, and I sent it to him. And he called me a couple of days. He's like, I like the demo and you seem cool. Why don't, why don't you do this off little off Broadway puppet show called Avenue Q. And of course I was like an off Broadway puppet show. Is that really what I'm going to get myself into right now? But, um, he invited me to see a run through at, in the rehearsal room just before moving to the theater. And I've never laughed so hard in my life. I was just <laughs> dying laughing and I could, I could sense the creative team behind me watching me to see what I would be laughing at and what I wouldn't be laughing at. Um, but it was absolute honest, all of my laughter. I wasn't putting it on. And, uh, I thought, I thought, Holy, Holy crap. This is like going to be, this is going to be a huge hit. This is like, what did I just get myself into? This is amazing. And, uh, yeah, it was a seven year, seven year gig. So it started off Broadway. Where was it off Broadway? started at the Vineyard Theater off-Broadway, and there was four of us in the band then. And then when we moved to Broadway, they expanded to six. Yeah, we wow, added... Wow, only six? I did, that, that's amazing. Six. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, so it was a bass, a drums, bass, guitar, two keyboards, and a reed player. That was the band for Q. Oh, because so the they... Uh... Golden, so tiny. The Golden Theater so small, I think the minimum at the Golden was four. So... It's a Broadway show. We have a band of six and two of the band members were on the cut list the entire time. You know, they never exercised that cut them, but they were on the cut list. Wait, oh, this is something new to me. What is the cut list? Yeah. So apparently I don't know if it's still, still the case, but back, back in the day when, when Q was, was open, all these theaters have, but they have to do uh, use musicians, right? And, um, and the Golden Theater's minimum requirement was to hire four musicians. You, you had to hire four musicians. So if you're above that number, which we were by two, those two musicians are on what's called the cut list, meaning that the producers can cut those chairs at any time. Oh my God, really? Yeah. So uh, when it moved off Broadway, they also, they did end up cutting a couple of musicians after a while. They cut bass and guitar after a while. They brought it back, back to what the Vineyard Band was, to four. So, oh. yeah. Yeah, so for years at the Golden, two of our musicians were on this cut list. They could have lost their jobs, you know, uh, but they didn't. The producers didn't do it. They they kept all six of us. Just now, them. They would cut them because of, of poor sales, or but wouldn't they have to... Yeah, like just yeah, just a financial thing. If they want to save a couple of bucks. Yeah. But it was a big, you know, Broadway show that was making lots of money. So they didn't cut them. You know, they didn't cut our bass and guitarist. Off Broadway, they did, though. They ended up cutting them after a few months. So it started out at the, what theater again? Vineyard Theater. Vineyard Theater, then it moved to Broadway. What? It was uh, July 31st of 2003. That right? Oh, my God. Yeah, that sounds <laughs> Do you remember the reception that you guys got? during that time oh yeah about? it was like a huge hit everybody loved it and you know i and uh 
and we won the we won the Tony Award, which was a total shocker. Um, yeah, you guys went up against Wicked, and everybody thought that Wicked was going to win. I guess. Yeah, they they everybody thought that, including the producers of the telecast, because when they announced Avenue Q, the graphic on the side of the stage said Wicked, and they had to like quickly take it down. So everybody thought Wicked would win, um, but we were fortunate enough to win, and um, and uh, that propelled us into a real long run, which was cool. That's great. Yeah. And that changed my life, obviously, because, uh, you know, I had this, I had a big Broadway show. Um, I was in-house at Avenue Q. Wow. And I was 26 or something like that. So I would. It's another thing that people don't know. Tell people what the in-house contractor does on a Broadway show. Sure. So the in-house contractor is responsible for um, a payroll. So the in-house contractor gets the payroll together and hands it off to the house manager or to the producer, one of the two. Um, the in-house contractor makes sure everybody is there at curtain. Um, and um, basically the in-house contractor, I tell people, is like the stage manager for the band. Um, and uh, you're just responsible for all those people. And you get paid a little bit extra for that as well. You get a premium for it. You get like, is it 50% or double? I don't 50, remember. 50%. 50%. Yeah. So you get a 50% premium for doing that job. And, and, um, you know, sometimes it's a hard job. Sometimes it's easier at Avenue Q. It wasn't so hard. Um, I was in house on another show later that doubled the amount of musicians it was 12 musicians. And I was like, okay, now this is getting a little, little more difficult to handle payroll because you're handling payroll for, not only the regular player, but for all the subs as well. So if every regular player sends three or four musicians in, or I think you're only allowed to send two in a week. Um, so let's just say every player, you have a 12 piece band and everybody subs out with two players that week. So all of a sudden that's 24 people on your payroll. And um, so it gets a little, little scarier. But then I did another show where I was not in house, thank God with over 40 musicians and that poor in house, contractor, you know, handling 40 musicians plus all the subs and all the issues and, and needs of everyone is rough. So it could be, it could be really fun and easy, or it could be really hard. Avenue Q was kind of fun and easy. You left Avenue Q to do another show. When I left Avenue Q, it was because it moved off Broadway. Basically they pulled a meeting up meetings together with, with the band and our, our music director, Gary Adler said, um, you know, we're moving, we're, we're moving to Broadway, uh, off Broadway, uh, you know, who's in. And I was like, Oh man, I don't, I don't know. At the time I was getting busy with recording work and I was getting busy with, uh, doing concerts, um, touring with people. I was doing a lot of shows with Cheetah Rivera, who I ended up now I've been working with for, you know, like eight, 16, 17 years or something like that. And I was, uh, I thought, I don't know if I wanted to, to, to move with the show off Broadway and, and start where, go back to where we came from kind of thing. And, um, my heart just wasn't in it anymore, honestly. And I had these great subs that could take over. And, um, and luckily Joe Horshevsky, um, was willing and able and wanted to do it. And, um, I said, you know, Godspeed to Joe and he took over. That was that. 
So you work with Cheetah Rivera in a show called The Dancer's Life? Yeah, so um, towards the end of the Avenue Q run, I took a leave from Avenue Q to do The Dancer's Life. Um, I was hired to do the workshop of it a few years prior to that. And then we did another workshop of it. And then we finally went to uh, San Diego to the old globe before coming into Broadway. And uh, um, it was so, it was great fun doing that show. It was a great band. Everything about it was, was kind of perfect. And, um, and that started a really long relationship with Cheetah where I was her drummer on tour for many years, 12, 14 years. And then I ended up becoming her music director and I've been her music director now since, uh, you know, 2016 or 17 or something like that. And she keeps me really busy. It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, I want to go back to Avenue Q and ask you a question about yeah. the music for it. Did you come up with the, the drum book for it? Did you create the parts? As drummers, right, it's always hard to answer that, right? Because because Stephen did put a lot of information in the chart. But yeah, I think, you know, I would say it was a, it was a combined effort. Stephen's writing and, and what I brought to it. Um, there's definitely a lot of stuff I added to the to the chart as we went. Um, uh, the groove would, would be there, but Steven was always like, but just make it your own in the rehearsal room. And I made it my own and, and, um, the fills were, 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 were mine. There are a couple of fills that he put in there. He's like, I want it to be this. And I made sure they were that, but other than that, um, you know, fills and, and a lot of the grooves were, yeah, I came up with and, but Steven definitely had a huge uh, part of it. I wouldn't, I would not say that, um, you know, sometimes drummers are given like the piano part and the bass part and they're told write a drum book. That was not the case. He definitely had a lot of information there. I just kind of made it my own. Doing the show from 2003 to 2009. Yeah. What did you do to keep things fresh? I did a lot of gigs outside of the show. First of all, I think that's really important you know, get a bunch of subs that you trust and that are approved by the conductor and sub out, go do other gigs. Um, that kept things fresh for me because I would go and, you know, not play the show for three or four days cause I had other gigs and then I would come back and it would feel good. You know, I wasn't there every day. Um, I don't think it's healthy to, to play your show every day and, and never sub out. Um, so that's what kept it fresh for me. I and what what else kept it fresh were, were the people. I mean, the cast was amazing. They were so super nice to all of us. The band was um, they were my best buds in the in the business then, and they still are now. You know, these people are I'm really tight with Gary, Marianne, Brian. I don't see Mark a lot, but we were tight at the time. And and Patience, I don't see a lot. Patience Higgins was our read player, but these were like really great people and. Um, and uh, I think the vibe of a long-running show is what keeps things fresh for you. You know, just like making sure that that everybody gets along really well, because that can make or break a whole pit. You know that. Going back to something that you just said, uh, getting subs that are approved. Yeah. People don't may not know the difference between being designated and being approved. What does that mean in a Broadway pit? So approved means. Um, they could come back. So your sub could come back and play a second show, a third show, maybe, uh, maybe a fourth show. And then the fifth show, 
means a lot because after the fifth show, it's like, is this person designated? Meaning, can this person come in and play the show when, say, other people in the rhythm section are not there? Um, when there are subs in the, in the rhythm section or if there's a subconductor. So approved means you could come back, but there are some parameters and designated means you're good. You could play with whomever, whenever. Um, and uh, usually, I mean, when I was subbing, uh, I think five or six shows you were designated after, after five or six shows or something like that. Did you ever have people that were approved and not designated at Avenue Q? Um, no, that never happened. That never happened. There were some people that um, that it didn't work out in the long run for other for other reasons. But no, there was never there was never anyone that was approved and not designated. And I don't even I don't remember them there being someone approved and not designated for any of the books at Avenue Q. When people want to play shows and, and be a drummer on Broadway and they do all the kind of things that are necessary to try to land a gig on Broadway. It's interesting to hear you say, you know what? It's probably not a good idea to do like eight shows a week for an entire year. Cause you might get burned out. These people w- might want to just play shows, but yeah. then you're saying maybe you should take off and do something else. They're like, well, what else am I going to do? I came here to play Avenue Q or whatever yeah. new show. How do you reconcile those two competing interests? Well, I do think it's healthy. So create something for yourself. Um, I think get get out of the just get out of that pit and every once in a while if you can, and if you have something cool to do, and um, and let your sub play. It's good for you. It's also good for your sub. You know, sub. It's hard to play a show once every nine or ten weeks because the regular doesn't sub out ever. It's like it's like basically playing the show for the first time again. If it's been too long, um, you know how that feels. It's hard. So I think it's a win-win for everyone when people sub out their shows. Yeah. You said you were subbing before you got Avenue Q. No, I was subbed after Avenue Q. No, I never subbed before Avenue Q. Yeah. So I got really lucky. Um, <laughs> yes, that is true. I got lucky because it started off Broadway. That's really the truth. You know. Yes before a contractor was involved. So I knew Michael Keller. I didn't know him very well. I kind of talked to John Miller once. I didn't know him very well. Um, and how he joins who I got to know really well was not necessarily contracting a lot at the time. So I didn't really know the contractors all too well, really. So, you know, if it had started on Broadway, then Michael Keller would have been involved from the beginning. And who knows if he would have hired me. He didn't know me really well. So, um, so it was a real blessing that it started off Broadway, but I did my subbing after, um, I left Avenue Q and I started subbing as much as I could. And I loved it. Really? Wow. I loved it. Um, and, uh, then there was a time when I just stopped loving it and I stopped subbing. But, um, you know, I subbed on five or six shows right after, right after Q. And, um, and I thought it was a great challenge. I thought it was, um, super fun to to learn all these charts and go in and play with all these great musicians and be a part of the scene in that way that, which I hadn't done yet. And I also felt like it was a little like, let's pay some dues. Now you got, you had a show for seven years, go sub now. 
and um, I I really loved it. I really did. What was the it's first show that What was the first show that you subbed on? Um, I think Mary Poppins was my first show, or Dave Radichek. Okay, and that was like that was pretty hard. Like the charts were hard, but Dave Radishek's style is so unique and so incredible and so amazing and genius. So to like have to like play, you know, what Dave Radishek is playing is like that's hard in itself. And then the the scene was was hard. They you know the the um it really demanded perfection. You know, at, at all 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 the time, you'd get a lot of notes at Mary Poppins, and you'd have to implement them. And um, and then I did Million Dollar Quartet right after that, and uh, I did Ghost and and Annie and If Then, for Damien. I think If Then was the last show I subbed on, and uh, it was great. It was so much fun. I heard like, that that wasn't easy. No, it was not. It was not easy, but it was so much fun to learn and, and do, and and the conductors were great. Everybody wanted you to be there, you know, as a friendly environment. Um, so that really helps. When it's not a friendly environment, when it's a hostile environment, it's no fun subbing. It's it's horrible, right? <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, I mean, fortunately, I haven't I haven't had any shows really that I've subbed on that it's been a bad scene and I've kind of avoided the places that I've heard that aren't very good. And plus I probably wouldn't fit in there anyway, because it's not really my kind of, uh, these show those shows aren't really in my wheelhouse. You know, when I, when I walk into a hostel, what I know is going to be a hostile environment because I know other people that have subbed there or the regular player says, just so you know, here's the deal at this show. Um, it just means you have to prepare so much more. It means you have to memorize more. Like I'm a big proponent of memorizing a lot of the music when you're subbing. Um, because I, I want to look at the conductor the entire time, at least for the first five or six songs, because the conductor is going, is this drummer going to be looking at me? Is he going to be following me? Is he or she going to be buried in the music or will they be buried in my in me conducting and a good way to get on, on the, on the conductor's really good side right away is to memorize your music, at least the beginning of the show. So your eyes are on, on that person. And it goes a long way in making sure that you are successful on subbing. It's one of the ways to get approved and designated. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. The more you memorize and the more you pay attention to the conductor, the faster you'll be approved and designated. Absolutely. And they'll smile at you. They'll, they love the fact that you're looking right at them and that you've memorized that, that those charts. I mean, it's just so important to do that. 2009 Avenue Q closes. You started playing percussion on a show called Brigadoon in 2010. No, actually. That's not you. I, I started, I played percussion for Brigadoon. It was just a concert. Oh, okay. Like a, a live concert. Um, which was Same which thing was with fun. Oliver? Oliver, yep. All these were like live benefit concerts. Yeah. But at the time, let's see, this was 2009. So at that time, I had already been playing Radio City for, you know, uh, since 2005. 
So that was my winter. I was subbing for Radio City for, for many years um, and playing a lot of shows a week. So I had that kind of, in, I knew I knew come November, December, I would have some work playing, playing Radio City. So I've been speaking to a couple of drummers that have played Radio City. Yeah. Steve Bartosik. Yeah, yeah. Of course, Joe Horashevsky and uh, Joshua Samuels recently on percussion. And I haven't talked, to, haven't spoken with Tom Oldakowski. I don't think he's doing it anymore. No, he's not. All right. But um, tell me about Radio City. I know it's different, a whole lot different from Broadway. How do you get involved in actually trying to become a sub for Radio City or how do you audition? Tell me, tell me about the whole process. Yeah, now there's auditions. You know, back when I started in in the group in Radio City, there were no auditions yet. Um, so Tom uh, Tom called me, Oltakowski, out of the blue and said, hey, I, I need a sub at Radio City and someone recommended you. Um, and I went and I watched the book and I was like, this book is crazy. I cannot believe this book. Before you go on, before you go on, I said the exact same thing. He called me up in 2006. I'll never forget because I was learning the color purple for Buddy Williams getting my wheelhouse. And then there's Radio City, which is a lot of work. So I watched. I was on stage. You know, the, the stage goes up and goes down. And when it goes up, it, there's, you're behind this wall and you see uh, the, the little people and horses and ice skaters. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is this. And then you hear the, the track. Like 42, 43, 144, 145. I'm like, oh my God, this is, is, I I can't, I can't. Uh, It's crazy. I, (laughs) but but the thing is having that click, having everything click the entire show with the bar numbers being fed to you, which by the way, you could shut off if you want. I always kept them up a little bit. Um, Makes the, makes subbing there easier than most Broadway shows because Mm. most people not to a click. So you really, having to like watch and play with everybody and make sure that you're, you know, the ictus is you're agreeing with, with your bass player and your piano player and your guitarist and everything. Radio city, there's no like negotiating anything. It's like, here's the click and you're playing along to it. So when you learn it, it's easier to learn and it's actually a little easier to play. Now, that being said, it's a hard show to play because it's relentless. It's an hour and change of like nonstop music. Really? So, wow. Crazy. There's really no downtime at Radio City on, on the drum chair. You're playing uh, a lot of notes a lot of the time and it's, it's nuts. And Tom, you know, when Tom asked me to do it, it was the, there was a, a strike at, the, at that year. So I ended up having start to start the next year. And um, I subbed for, 12 years, I believe. And then, and then Tom retired and then I auditioned for the chair and, and got the chair with Steve Bartosik. We, we, we were, uh, what they call split chairs where you kind of split the shows. And, um, I did that for two years and then I, and then I, then, you know, auditions came up again and I didn't audition again. I thought that was a really great 14 years. I'm going to leave it at that. So what do you have to do to audition at radio city? Well, the uh, how he joins the contractor Radio City. He puts out an ad every year, saying we're you know accepting resumes for the following positions, and and you got to send your resume to him, and 
and whoever's music directing that year. That's changes every so often. And they decide whether or not they want to audition you and they look at your experience and, um, and, uh, and, and bring in a certain amount of people. It's, it's really like, it's that simple. Yeah. But you have to have a little bit of experience on your resume because there's so many people handing in their resume to get that job. And if, you know, if they hire, they audition like 18 or 20 people, you know, they might get 40 or 50 resumes. Who knows? I don't know. I have no idea. But you have to have credits there. Say it again. You have to have some sort of credits there for Howie and the music director to be like, yeah, let's bring this person in. Yeah. So what kind of credits do you think people should, should have? Uh, theater, uh, you know, experience whether it's Broadway, off-Broadway, regional, whatever it is, just some sort of theater experience. you got to have some sort of experience playing shows. Because Radio City also, for drums, is has every style in it. You know, so you got to be a rock drummer, you got to be a jazz drummer. There's some Latin stuff, there's everything. And uh, which brings us to a whole other point is when you're coming up and you want to play shows, make sure you just learn all the styles. Make sure that you're like really up up on everything. Because um, you're going to be asked to play any style at any time. you got to be able to do it. And that's especially true at Radio City. Sunset Boulevard, 2017. Yeah. I mean, um, dream gig. You know, it was uh, like, hey, do you want to come play drums on stage? Glenn Close, limited run, 42 musicians or 41 or 42 musicians on stage. So wow. it was like, like a, you know, small orchestra, small pops orchestra on stage and, um, wall to wall music. And it was incredible. It was just amazing. I loved every minute of it. Were you the in-house for that? No, thank God. <laughs> or Pete Donovan. Donovan uh, like one of our, one of our greatest bass players in town. He, uh, he was the in-house for, for Sunset Boulevard, and I, I did not envy his, his uh, job. A lot of, it's a lot of musicians and a lot of subs and a lot of stuff to deal with. You got involved in Sesame Street during, during that time, I suppose? Yeah, so I got involved with Sesame Street in 2010. Yeah, I, had a, I, I still do. I have a recording studio in the East Village. And, um, and they were looking to find a studio to record Electric Company, uh, the reboot of Electric Company, and Sesame Street a year later, two years later. And Bill Sherman, the music supervisor for the Electric Company and Sesame Street, still my boss today, um, came to visit the studio and said, this is where we're going to record. And um, That's a pretty good contract. It's a pretty good contract. So I was... For Electric Company, it was the studio only, but for Sesame, it was like play drums, mix the songs, and it's your studio. So it was like a real, almost full-time gig. It was a lot of work. And um, that was for like a decade. And then, uh, you know, we don't use that studio now. I still have the studio, but we use a bigger studio because we just wanted a, a bigger studio in Brooklyn. And um, so the studio's still there. You know, it's still pretty busy. I do all of my post work here in Connecticut. So I do a lot of my mixing up here. Well, actually all my mixing up here and editing and everything. And I never, I don't have to go in there really, except for tracking. Yeah. 
you grew up playing drums and obviously sax and violin and <laughs> you got into recording. Yeah. What was the, um, the thing that made you say, you know what, I should probably learn this skill in addition to playing shows in Radio City and the Suzuki method? <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I think, you know, I was at, I was at Miami when this, when it all started, I got like a, uh, I was talking to some people about doing drum tracks for their project. And, um, there was a recording department there that I thought maybe I'll take some classes in the recording department. And then someone said to me, just get a couple of books and get the basic pro tools, LE system. Just teach yourself, you know, to do this. And I thought, all right, maybe I'll start there. And so I got a couple of books and I got the Pro Tools LE system and uh, I just started creating drum tracks for people. And that led to get buying more gear because it's a bottomless pit of gear that you get, that you have to get all the time. If you're in the recording business, there's just the microphones and preamps and, you know, all sorts of stuff, lots of plugins and, and just gear after gear after gear. So I just started going down that hole into that world of just collecting stuff. And um, and then before I knew it, you know, I was in New York playing Avenue Q and thought, you know, Avenue Q is not going to be forever. And I don't know if I'll get another Broadway show. Who knows? I hope so, but who knows? Um, but I really dig this recording thing and I'm already mixing for people and I'm already producing. So why not make this, try to make this more of a, a thing. And that's when I, I found, I found the studio in the East village and it was actually a hair salon that I turned into a studio. Yeah. And, uh, and then, you know, I got like some really big contracts right away. So right away I was doing a show called Johnny and the Sprites for the Disney channel. And right away I was, doing electric company right after that. And then Sesame street after that. So, you know, knock on wood, it, 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 it worked out. And, and, and I really am pretty much self-taught on the audio side, the mixing and editing and just took, took a long, many years and a long time, but you know, that's, that's how it all happened. You had to name five drummers, top five drummers of all time. Who would they be? Uh, I think I said them before, and I, I think I'm sticking to that. Um, Tony Williams, Philly Joe Jones, Dave Wecker was a huge influence because I just wanted to play Spain, that groove on Spain and, and the acoustic band albums so badly. Um, Tower of Power, Garibaldi was a huge influence. But but really, also, I, I mean, I'm saying the Jazz Cats, but Neil Peart, huge influence. Alex Van Halen, like I was trying to like learn all of Alex Van Halen stuff. He's so good. He's so underrated. Um, Nico from Iron Maiden, amazing. Um, and, and Led Zeppelin, you know, I listen to a lot of Led Zeppelin, I listen to a lot of John Bonham. That's more than five, but <laughs> that's what this is. I could, I could name like a dozen more that are in, in, but yeah, those, I think those are the top ones I would say. Yeah. Your favorite musical to play was what and why? Oh boy. You know, I think it's going to be Avenue Q. It was just so much fun to play every night and, and, um, it, it kickstarted my career. It, it got my studio open. It, it, um, it did so much for me. So I'm just so, my memories of Avenue Q are just so huge. 
but Sunset Boulevard, you know, being on stage with all those musicians was pretty amazing. And, and of course, you know, Radio City being what Radio City is when it comes down to it is so much fun, even though it's challenging and, and it's, it could be, you know, grueling on a two or three show day. It's really a blast. What's the most important thing a drummer should know about being a success on Broadway? Don't rely so much on calling contractors. A lot of people just like, what contractors should I call? I have to tell Keller and Howie and Miller and Christy Norder and all these other, Jill. Um, I've got to let them know I'm here and willing to, to, do, to do their next big Broadway show. It just doesn't work that way. The best thing you can do is get to know music directors and composers and lyricists. Do workshops, do readings, do all that stuff. Um, whatever you do, just try to meet. And now you could meet people on, on, on Facebook and Instagram and, and Twitter. And you could say to them, hey, I saw, I saw your show or I, I heard your album. It's amazing. I'm a drummer new to town. If you ever need a drummer for, for anything, if you're doing a reading or workshop or a show in some coffee shop somewhere, I'm in. Just let me know. That's that's how you're going to break into the business, not necessarily calling contractors. And calling contractors is great because maybe you could get some good advice, but don't expect a gig from that. I think a lot of people do expect that. What was your biggest mistake while you were on a show? Biggest mistake? Oh my gosh. My biggest mistake. Have you made any? <laughs> I'm trying to think of a big mistake. <laughs> um, I mean, of course, there's always little mistakes here and there. When... Yeah, I was going to say, I've always, I've, of course, made little mistakes here and there. I don't think I've made a huge mistake on Broadway. I, 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 I'll have to think about that and maybe email you another time. <laughs> well, I will tell you what I learned, you know, after my third or fourth show, um, which I guess are big mistakes that I made on the previous shows is to go to the conductor's office after the show, your first few shows, and say, hey, was everything okay? Anything you want me to do differently? Anything you noticed? I started doing that at around my third or fourth show, and man, that made a huge difference. In what way? Well, they would go, oh, wow, thank you for asking. Yeah, as a matter of fact, maybe try this and try that, and our regular drummer does this here. And you'd go and, and you're writing things down and go, thank you so much. I, I love that input. I'll do that next time. I wish I had known that on my first show because it made a big difference. You do a lot of session work right now for Sesame Street. When you were doing shows, did you use any specific type of gear and why did you use it? Uh, drum gear? Yes. Yeah. So um, I do use Yamaha drums. I'm not in, I don't have an endorsement with Yamaha drums. I just love Yamaha drums. So I have three Yamaha kits. One is a absolute maple custom. One is like the maple custom from back in the day with the, with the wood stain and the gold lugs that I had cut down to jazz sizes because they were power toms. And I had someone in Brooklyn cut them down to jazz sizes and they're in my studio in the East Village and they're the most amazing sounding drums ever. And then I have a Birch absolute custom for Sesame Street in, in, in Brooklyn. I love the yes mount system, which is why I love these drums. Um, 
And not only do they sound great, but I just love that mounting system. I like my drums and cymbals really tight and close to each other. And it's just really easy to do that with the Yamaha hardware. That's what I've found. And once again, I'm not an, I don't have an endorsement, so I'm just saying this out of pure joy of Yamaha stuff. Um, Symbol-wise, I use Zildjian Ks. Um, and sticks and mallets, I have Promark stuff. Um, I had an endorsement with Promark for a long time, but the truth is, you get to a point where you're like, how much more stick and mallet stuff can I possibly have? Like, I have everything I need, and... I didn't place an order with them or talk to them for years. And I think I just let the relationship fizzle because I haven't spoken to them in so long that I doubt they would even know who I am at this point. But I had a Promark endorsement, so I use, still use Promark stuff. And um, yeah. Are you doing anything outside of Sesame Street? Yeah, so I do, um, I produce cast recordings as well. Um, and um, um, I just had one drop today, as a matter of fact. Uh, called the Strange Loop. Ah, and, yeah. So, Marcus Walls is on there, right? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And that's out today. Just finished that one. And I do about you know I try to do. I do a few cast recordings a year, you know, three or four, and and I do a lot of recordings that are Broadway stars, Broadway singers doing their own solo albums. I'll do I'll do that here and there. Um, but I sure do love working on cast recordings. It's 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 a lot of fun. Are you producing them? Are you engineering them? Mixing them? Yeah, so I produce them. And uh, a lot of times I engineer them. Sometimes I have an engineer with me. Um, a lot of times I mix them. But usually if it's a big Broadway cast recording, I'll do all the editing. And I'll have someone else do the mixing just because it takes so much time to do the editing for a Broadway show. And people want their cast recordings out really fast. So like a strange loop was a quick turnaround. So doing the editing and the mixing is not realistic. Um, and I have a great guy named Matthias Winter who uh, mixes when I don't. And he's he's amazing. Um, but sometimes I'll mix an album if I have time. I'll do both. I'll do the editing and the mixing. And, and uh, we record the big shows we record at Power Station in Midtown. Um, the smaller ones we could get away with at my place sometimes in the East Village. And, uh, yeah. Where can people find you on social media? Um, I'm on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. I, I think I'm MC Yellow Sound on all those things. I'm terrible at social media. Absolutely horrible. Uh, <laughs> but like on a day like today when an album comes out, I wait for someone else to do something and then I just repost it. Retweet it. Or, that's, okay. That's as far as I can go. Um, wait, MC yellow sounds, MC yellow sound. Yeah. That's MC my... yellow sound sounds like a rapper, man. Uh, well, my initials <laughs> are MC. Exactly. And my, my business is called yellow sound. I have a yellow sound label, which is the record label that I own. And I have yellow sound lab. And, um, so that's why it's MC yellow sound. Yeah. And the name, the, the name of my businesses were, were, um, they're named after my dog, who who's not, sadly no longer with us. But I had a yellow lab for years, who's the studio dog. In oh East. wow! Everybody loved Tyler, and uh, when it came time for naming the studio, he was a Labrador. So I was like, Yellow Sound Lab. This is. A, it's, 
that's, that's why it's called Yellow Sound Lab and Label. Ah, that's cool. It was a pleasure speaking with you, and thank you, Mike Croyder, for being a part of Broadway Drumming 101. You shared a lot of great wisdom, and and thank you for taking time out. All right, man. Thank you for having me. I'm a, I'm a real fan of this, so I, I really appreciate it. It's an honor to be here. Thanks. If you like what you hear on the show, subscribe to the Broadway Drumming 101 newsletter at broadwaydrumming101.com. To continue producing the high-quality podcast you're listening to, publishing engaging newsletter content, and posting YouTube videos, we would appreciate any financial contributions you can make. At this time, we have no advertisers, and we'd like to keep it that way. Our staff is small, but growing. We can only produce a show with listener contributions from people like you. There are a couple of ways you can do that. You can sign up to be a monthly or annual subscriber at broadwaydrumming101.com. You can also contribute any amount you wish through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash broadwaydrumming101 or through Venmo at broadwaydrumming101. Or help keep us caffeinated by buying us a cup of coffee or a week's worth at buymeacoffee.com forward slash BD101. That's buymeacoffee.com forward slash BD101. We appreciate any support you can give. Don't forget to subscribe to the Broadway Drumming 101 YouTube page. You'll find more content that isn't featured on the podcast or on the Broadway Drumming 101 Instagram page. Make sure when you subscribe to the YouTube page, you click on the button to be notified when a new video is published. Be sure to visit our new shop at merchandise.broadwaydrumming101.com. Thanks again for listening to the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast.